This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Next on Plains FM, we have Movie Talk, a program for all things cinema-esque, for the discerning film and video junkie. Welcome again to Movie Talk. Today we'll be looking at the solo adventures of a mountain climber in The Alpinist. Strange mystical forces at work on a distant farm in Iceland in Lamb. And an attempt by a young Jew to avoid execution by the Nazis during World War II in Persian Lessons. I mean, I know it's dangerous. I'm not like deluding myself that it's not dangerous to go soloing. So why do it? Solo alpinism, climbing big technical mountains, is more than just a sport. It's only for the very best climbers on their very best days. It's the art of surviving in the most crazy situations. The Alpinist is a beautifully filmed documentary about a 23-year-old Canadian mountain climber who makes some of the boldest ascents ever undertaken. Peter Clements has been off to the Alice cinemas to see this rather inspirational film about a young man who's shown to be a skilled athlete and a master technician. Peter, does the alpinist make you want to go and climb a mountain? No. <laughs> Why not? I mean, it's a, such a beautiful... Frequently when I was flying down the Murchison or the Tasman Glacier, which I did for about 30 years, I would see them up on the mountain tops, little specks against the snow. What people? People, climbers. You could, you could see the climbers from as you as you descended down the Tasman or the glacier. You could see the line of climbers at the top of these, just little specks against nature. And you've got to question why they do it. But of course, when you see this film, you know why. These people are. How can I put it? They're driven. They're driven to do it. But what an amazing film. I mean, it's quite an achievement what they take on there. Absolutely. And it's a personal achievement for them. But the film is an achievement for those who love cinema. It is a great film to see from a cinematographic point of view. I mean, the the, the beautiful uh, scenery uh, of the mountains. Photography photography is amazing. Now, Mm. you have the name of the photographers, Hans. Yes, well, there were three of them. Austin Sladek. Jonathan Griffith and Fred Lovell, of, none of whom I've ever heard of, no. but uh, and you never see them. But, I mean, I still don't know how they work. They must have climbed up those mountains and left cameras up there uh, hoping that he would uh, they must climb have, past they, them or something. They would have used drones. Yes, a lot of work w- w- drones, was done I, by I drones. I don't think they used a helicopter. Mm. One of the things about a helicopter, if it gets too close, of course, it can cause avalanches <laughs> yes. because of the, the vibration of the rotors. But the film takes you to not only the mountains of the United States and Alaska, but down to South America, to Patagonia, yeah. where he climbs one of the most sheer faces you could ever possibly imagine. And he does it single-handed. Now, this is an alpinist who delights in climbing solo. He climbs with the minimum of equipment and alone. And this is what makes him stand out against his competitors, if, in fact, they are competitors, but not colleagues. But uh, as a man who doesn't climb, I can only marvel at his bravery 
<laughs> and, and his ingenuity. Because yes. he climbs these peaks sometimes without any preparation, never having climbed them before, never even having examined the faces. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's ironic. There are two directors to this, um, Peter Mortimer and Nick Rosen, and um, they were both mountain climbers themselves and then since then, for the last few years, have been making movies, documentaries about mountain climbing in different ways and uh, but the ironic thing is once I started working with um, uh, uh, with this uh, chappy for this film um, he, he uh, and he's a heck of a nice young guy um, Leclerc he um, he tells them that he doesn't even want them to accompany him because it wouldn't be a solo climb if the photographers came along. So they were under that frustration mm. of not always being able to um, follow him up or be, yeah. be anywhere near him. He, he sets himself <laughs> impossible tasks and f somewhere, somehow along the way, he finds himself a lovely young lady to accompany him on some of the climbs. Yeah. And one climb you see they're actually bivouacked at night on a sheer face. With the with their hammock, uh, ninety degrees from the face, just just suspended on ropes, and they spend the night there. I mean, absolutely incredible to see. Yeah, uh, but some of those scenes to me <clears throat> seem almost impossible because it's not just climbing, um, you know, the harsh sort of. Um, rock faces or flat rock faces or whatever they may be on these mountains. But they'd climb up the these um, huge, uh, the ice and snow that's coming down. You'd get these incredible um, icy... Ice faces. Uh, faces yes, on uh, them. And, and how, I mean, if you hack into that, you could easily break it and break yourself off. You know, long icy poles sort of things, whatever you yes. call them, coming off them. And... Um, uh, and and he's, he, he just takes this on. I mean, to him, it was always that challenge of taking on what, to me, would be virtually impossible. And, I mean, he must have known also that it's understood now that the, well, the title Alpinist um, applies to solo mountain climbers and that it, it, it actually, in, uh, half of those are killed in doing this climbing, about half of them come out dead. Yes, it, it, it amazes me. I, I, the world of alpinists was new to me. And uh, I had seen them, as I say, uh, around the Mount Cook area, lines of them going up mountains, <laughs> but never alone. And of course, when you get someone like him who goes out on his own, you've got to say, well, what does he do for support? Uh, there is none. There is none. He's on his own. Yeah. Right from the day he leaves the all the time he leaves the, his hostelry and he hikes into the the lower mountain and then he next day he, he starts climbing. Yeah, he has to decide which way to go. He usually hasn't even worked that out beforehand. But what will stay in my memory, uh, apart from the man himself who was unique, was the photography, mm -hmm. the filming. Absolutely fantastic. And and he, he doesn't well... He, well, he doesn't marry the camera very well. He doesn't like the camera. Yeah. You can see that. But he weathers it quite well in the end, and then he puts up with it. I understand the film was made over two years. Yes. And that's in a long time to chase. And they would frequently have to find him. He would disappear. 
uh, and suddenly he'd be off on a climb. He'd be halfway through a shoot and they'd disappear. And then they had to find him. And one time they found him down in Patagonia. So for two years they were chasing him all over the American continent looking for him to watch him climb. <laughs> That's right. No, but I mean, he just did his own thing. That's essentially it. He was that sort of a young man. But, uh, but the odd thing is he was such a nice guy. And and he must be highly intelligent. He was also, I mean, as a Canadian, he would have spoken good English and French, no, no doubt. And then he goes down to Patagonia. That's down in Argentina there. He's speaking in, in Spanish to some young, some kids there, and also to some adults another time. So, you know, he's a quite very intelligent young man. Mm. What, and, we should not be misled by his name. Apparently, he's from Vancouver, not Quebec. Oh, well. So that was his origin. French. So he was brought up in the mountains, and of course, and he was brought up in um, climbing the Rockies before graduating. Uh, to, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's where he mm-hmm. he was alive with mountains. For, left school at fifteen. Um, I, I cannot see him being emulated by many. No. Who would have the courage? <laughs> Who would have the daring do? Well, I certainly know that you wouldn't. No. Forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, thank you, Peter. That was Peter Clements with his views on The Alpinist. And I'm Hans Petrovic on Movie Talk on Plains FM 96.9. A childless couple discover a mysterious newborn creature on their farm in Iceland. Carolyn Brown's been off to the Lumia Cinemas to see this extremely unusual film. Carolyn, I was never certain what was going on in this quirky drama. What did you make of Lamb? Yeah, no, it didn't make sense to me either until I did the research after the film and then it was like, ah, that's why. Um, so the film basically is comes from the same stable as The Lobster, Midsummer, Ex Machina, Killing of the Sacred Deer. So those are also very weird. Are these films. Icelandic? Uh... No, they're not. No, no, no. The the company behind them, A24 Entertainment, their idea is to create artistically dense experimental film. Well, it certainly applies to this film. <laughs> it <Yes>. does. Mm. <laughs> and if you think about The Lobster, it had an extremely weird mm. premise, but mm. it kind mm. of worked. And this film is very much the same, although I I didn't see anything horror-filled about it. No, it's I'd never call it a horror, horror film. No, I could never see that. No. Yeah, either that I've ever been exposed to far I mean, too many horror films. It's film about love. <laughs> yeah, yeah of, of motherhood. A for and a, <laughs> <laughs> little baby. Here in Compassion and Sheep. Um, yeah, so the, and also the, the writer, Valimir Johansson, he um, co-wrote the screenplay with this guy called Schwann, who is an Icelandic poet, novice and lyricist who collaborates with Bork. And that also helps... Um, explain explain the film. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but, but, I mean, but, but you know, I mean, the film is essentially sort of set in a remote, frozen, mountainous countryside up in um, Iceland. Mm. And these, this husband and wife farmer, 
They hardly talk. Well, actually, they do not say a word for the first 10 minutes. Is it really 10 minutes? It's that long. And they do not even exchange a smile. And we just see them as a hardworking couple going out each day, harvesting their crops and tending to their sheep and horses sort of with a sort of joyless dedication and you wonder what's going on here yeah. you know I mean if they it looks as if they're not too happy with each other but what's going on and um, and then one of the sheep gives birth <laughs> with the help of the yes, woman yes to, to, a, to a baby to a baby which of course I assume is a sheep yes well that's giving away too much of the plot I mean it's yeah we can't go too much into what part of the sh- Anyway, she wraps it up in a blanket. <laughs> and takes it home. <laughs> With its head sticking out. And then it starts to get a little bit weird. And weirder and weirder <laughs> and weirder. <laughs> but massive kudos to the animals in this film. They just act their little feet off, really. Oh, yes. Don't you think? Uh, looking the sheep out, yeah, and the yeah, dog yeah, the and the cat. on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah those sheep were Perfectly amazing. Perfectly timed. I mean, you could almost feel like you know what the dog's thinking. You know what the cat's <laughs> thinking. You definitely know what the sheep's thinking. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I saw that film with a big... I was sort of projecting a big question mark onto the screen for my... My mind wondering, what the hell is this all about? What are those two? And then the the, his, um, the husband's brother turns up, and he looks so much like him. Yes, that I was a bit confused as to what's going on there, and you wonder what he's doing there. I still wonder what he's doing. But there. I mean, if you do remember <laughs> the lobster film, it's mm. kind of it's very much like that, and the, you actually don't know where. It doesn't follow any set rules or anything, so you don't actually know where the film is going to go next. And I quite enjoyed Lobster, and I'm sure Lamb will grow on me too. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating <laughs> stuff. I mean, it kept me going all the time, but just trying to put the basic understand, some understanding, some basic together. understanding yeah. together. So it's definitely a film for people who like their films not to be formulaic. Yeah, well, yeah. it certainly wins that one. Yeah. It definitely wins yeah. that one. <laughs> Yeah, what did they used to? They used to have those film festivals here. The incredibly strange film festival. Oh, well, this yes. would be number one film. Oh, definitely. That, I it? think I mentioned that to you <laughs> yeah. as we were walking out of yeah. the cinema. If that that yes. part of the international fest still existed, um, yeah. yes, most definitely, it would be the opening night film. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> and then it's only in the last. Uh, it unfortunately takes you right to the end before you get a sort of a. Surprise development, which explains things to a certain extent in a very odd way. <laughs> you do, yeah. Think, you, ah, hmm. Now, where did that come from? <laughs> you do, but you also kind of there's lots of loose threads that are never explained, and I don't think they're meant to be. No. Um. Yeah, it's part of the experimental part of the film that you do get to spend a lot of the film thinking. <laughs> What would I do? Or, hmm, what would my, I mean, <laughs> what's going on yeah, there? <laughs> looking on the positive side, you see that actually what this husband and wife are unhappy about is the fact that they haven't got a child of their exactly, own. Exactly, yeah. And once uh, she starts to care for this uh, baby lamb called Lamb, yes. <laughs> um, they come close well, together and both care for that and care more for each other. You see they that do. Developing. And the baby arrives on Christmas Eve. Did it? Yes. All right, so. Well, what, do you think that's significant in any way? <laughs> There's nothing in the Bible about this. It's is a it? Christmas miracle. 
<laughs> I mean, because I mean, I, I've read a few um, uh, reviews about it, which mention the folklore of Iceland. Yeah, but, but I've tried to follow that through, and I still cannot find any. Yeah, folklore I think I'd be annoyed. That may have something to, to do with this sort of thing about you don't have folklore about sheep, do you? No, but I do. Yeah, I think the Icelandic have every right to be annoyed about that that it's being pushed as a kind of. Um, based on folklore, well, at least that or that I can't find anywhere and you couldn't find anywhere in the search engines the actual <laughs> folklore that the film was actually based on. And and even, uh, like, reading what the, the scriptwriter, the author, says was his, like, premonition for the movie, it, he doesn't actually reference any. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, all I can ask is I can recommend people go and see it, and if anybody can understand it, they can, would they please leave a message for me about it at Plains FM. Okay. <laughs> okay, Thanks. thank you. Bye. <laughs> that was Carolyn Brown helping me with Lamb. I'd like to thank the sponsor of the show, the Harcourt's Grenadier Accommodation Centre, which is now located at 98 Moorhouse Avenue. If you're looking for a place to live, check out the Harcourt's Accommodation Centre website, www.assetmanagers.co.nz. That address again, www.assetmanagers.co.nz. <laughs> In Persian lessons, a young Jewish man who has been captured by the Nazis during World War II falsely claims to be from Persia to avoid being executed. Mary Gibson's been off to the Academy Cinemas to see this rather offbeat drama. Mary, this film is supposed to be inspired by a true story. What did you think of Persian Lessons? Oh, goodness. Um, Persian Lessons was a really interesting movie. It was such a great play on human nature, wasn't it? And, yes. And how people react and behave in certain situations, and particularly the lead character, how he, his whole existence um, was about survival and how he, how he managed to do that. This, this film is really interesting because... It looks at a different side, I think, of the whole aspect of the war and, of course, you know, the Nazis killing the Jews and being in concentration camps and all that kind of thing. It was from from a perspective of a SS officer who had joined the, um, you know, the SS because that's what you did yeah. and not that he really wanted to be no, there. He, he was to a, be a chef. Cook. <laughs> he was a chef. <laughs> yeah. And that's what he wanted was to have a world-class you know, restaurant. So it was from his perspective, really, I think, more than anything. And then the, you know, the story of the young guy that we only knew as Reza because that was the name he'd taken on as his um, Persian, Persian name. name. Mm. Um, didn't know him as any other name at all. And so it was so interesting watching that interplay of 
of characters and how that evolved throughout this movie. And and you said earlier that it was based on a true story or, or based inspired on facts, by, inspired yeah. by facts. <laughs> that could um, mean anything. Sure, sure. Probably, you know, glorified in certain ways. But it wouldn't surprise me because more and more and more we are hearing through through movies, through storytelling, about these amazing people um, who survived in the war, who saved others, or who worked as hard as they could to save others. And and every time you see something, you go, wow, I never knew that, or I didn't know that about that. We know the kind of the whole story of the war. We know about you know, the Nazis and, and killing the Jews and so on and, and you know, decimating Poland and all of those yeah. things. But we don't know the little stories. And, yes, yes. And, and, you know, like the zookeeper's wife was another one. That oh, was yes. a fantastic mm. with um, Jessica Chastain, another fantastic movie. Schindler's List, of course, you know, which was the, the epitome of telling these stories. And I, I think that, that they're really important as a, as a piece of yeah. history. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, possibly better explain a little bit about this plot because this young Jewish boy, he's um, captured by the um, German Nazi mm-hmm. army in, mm-hmm. in France mm-hmm. and they intend to shoot him, execute with mm-hmm. a few bunch of others that they've just caught. Mm-hmm. But he, 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 collapse, he bobs out there, falls down before he's even been shot, so he's still mm-hmm. alive afterwards. And before they had actually captured him, through another man, he had got hold of this Persian book written in Persian and mm. a message in the uh, handwritten at, at the front of it. Mm. And so he claims to them that he's not Jewish, he's actually Persian. This book proves that it was given mm. to me by mm. my father and he is, mm. he's written his uh, note to me with my name, Riza, mm. at the mm. bottom mm. of it, mm. you know. And, and they take him on mm. because they know they've got a boss there, one, or one of their leading people there. The chef. The chef, mm. um, who... One after the war wants to go and open a restaurant in Persia and would like to learn the language first. So they want him to teach him how to speak mm-hmm. Persian, that he can only speak one word, and that's Baba, which means dad. <laughs> yeah. But and, and interestingly, you know, coming back to that point of um, human life and, and, and at that time how little value it had, the book was traded for a sandwich. So yeah. when you put that into context, you know, this, this young guy who Reza who was his name as we knew it in the movie he um, he had a sandwich and this other guy who had stolen the book from his landlord <laughs> you know so it's just so intricate isn't it in yeah. terms of how it plays out he'd stolen the book from the landlord and he wanted desperately wanted something to eat so they traded how, how fortuitous was Pretty that that he just happened Un- to end up with a Persian unbelieving book. but yeah. how, how quick thinking was he um, and and what did Delightful character, um, the young young part of Reza was played by Nahuel Perez, I think. Yeah, Nahuel Perez. Biscayat. Mm. Do you know he's actually Argentinian? Well, I can tell by the Perez and the name there. That's, and Nahul <laughs> is, a, is a, speaks, a Spanish yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. He, speaks, uh, flu, he speaks fluent French and, and some yeah. and German, all these languages. Yeah. And it's made up Arabic, mm. yeah. yeah. But, I mean, the, but the, the, the weirdness of this film starts after he's been taken mm. to this concentration mm. camp mm. To, and introduced to this captain, this co- uh, the chef, like, mm. and... 
and he wa- he's going to teach him a, a language of which he only knows one word. Yeah. So he takes the, he's got the list of the names of all the different to... people, and he makes up one word at a time and writes it down. Yeah. A made up word and gives it a meaning, sort of the, what's mm. supposed to be a, mm. a Persian word, and then his own yeah their own um, German. Meaning of it, and uh, and he builds this up to several hundred <laughs> words, but, and has to remind, you know, remember them all. But I think what you have to ah, also—I mean, this is where the whole thing gets a bit yeah, wacky. Well, know? well, I think what you also have to say is how he came about making up the names. That mm. was, so he started off making names up um, just from random things. You know, he'd just come up with random names for random words. But then he was given a list, and it had so many words on it, and he, he thought, I'll never be able to remember all this. And he was entering the names of the people who had been interred in the camp yeah. and who had subsequently died or been shot and um, and so he'd see a name for instance Marion and he'd leave the A off and say Arion means blah blah or whatever and so every name he he then translated that across to, <laughs> a, to a word so that's how he remembered and the end is incredibly incredibly poignant you know because they uh, he survives, and they ask him, "How do, do you remember any names?" He said, "I remember two thousand five hundred and eight, or whatever the number is." And he recites them because um, yeah, he had written st- them yeah. all in the yeah, book over the weeks, oh, over months, the months, years. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really mm. interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, we're already running out of time. I could have gone. We could go on for a long I, time. Well, it's interesting because I film. wondered what we would even talk about <laughs> about this film. But no, it we is just so started. It's amazing. But I just wanted to make that final. Point, but today it's eighty years since the, this film was mm. set in nineteen forty-two. Mm. So mm. it's almost eighty years, and times have changed. This, the modern gen, new, current gen, young generation—that's eighty years ago for them. Mm. Seventy, mm. Years, you know. So, mm. and they don't know as much about it as we. They haven't seen mm. all those films over mm. the years about it that we have. So now they feel that they to get this message across again, they can't just keep on repeating on the atrocities of those old serious films. Mm. Mm. But here they show us this, throughout the film the same terrible atrocities being committed, but inside this really offbeat wacky story, yeah, <laughs> which it, keeps you going in a, in a totally different way, but they still make their point. In a very, very human way, and I think that's what translates so well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. Thank you. That was Mary Gibson with her views on Persian lessons. And I'm Hans Petrovic, inviting you to listen to Movie Talk again on Plains FM 96.9 at midday next Wednesday. This program will also be repeated at midday on Saturday, and you can listen to podcasts of earlier episodes on Plains FM website, plainsfm.org.nz. (laughs) 